I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode eight of Theater Forward. Good to be here. Very good to be here. So this week, we are going to the barricades. Uh, We thought it would be fun to uh, talk about the things that we absolutely love or that maybe drive us a little bit crazy here in the theater world. Um, so this will be a slightly different format from our, our past conversations. We're just going to kind of take turns and and throw out a few of the, the things that we're really super passionate about, pro or con. And uh, and we hope that you will find this a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it because I don't know what's on your list. Right. <laughs> so, Julie, do you want to kick us off? Do you have one? I will kick us off. Uh This used to be something that um, people love to talk about. And it was like the crazy um, directors in a rehearsal room who were screaming and yelling at people and belittling them. Um, That should not happen anymore. Hmm. And it does still. This sort of misbehavior in a rehearsal room. And when I hear people say to me, oh, my God, he or she just lost it. And I think, how is that possible? There are all adults in that room and you should never get to a point in this occupation where screaming is ever an alternative, ever. Yeah. Boy, Fosse Verdon is really bringing up a lot. (laughs) Exactly. That used to be the cool, creative thing. It's not anymore. It's just someone who's off balance and needs to maybe think about stepping back. That reminds Mm -hmm. me of a a story involving Jerome Robbins, who was, of course, such a sweetheart, but also a genius. And he was in rehearsal with Zero Mostel for Fiddler. And he was backing up toward the lip of the stage. And Zero could see it happening and hated Jerome Robbins. And he just let him go over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I think there's your alternative. (laughs) At at the risk of 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 losing our our PG rating, I I I think that it's it's we've come to a point in our world where we can question this idea that um, it's okay to be an asshole if you're a genius. Absolutely, I think you can be a genius without being an asshole. Agree, hundred percent. Yes, to the barricade. Yes, I like that, Julie. I will join you on that barricade. Very good. Mike, what about you? Well, I'm go- I totally agree with Julie, and I am going to flip this into something which I think is at the opposite extreme, which is to be too nice. And I am talking mm-hmm. specifically about the proliferation of standing ovations. Mm-hmm. It drives me nuts <laughs> to see. I mean, I see a couple hundred shows a year. When I'm seeing a standing ovation at 150 of them, something is very, mm-hmm. very wrong. It's become sort of an obligatory thing to do. Uh, And the problem is, and it's a Wisconsin nice thing to do. I see it way more in Wisconsin than I do in Chicago or New York or other places. Mm -hmm. And people think they're being nice or think they're patting themselves on the back for having spent money on a ticket. And actually what they're doing is showing profound disrespect for the people on stage because they have taken away the ability to honor the truly great performances, which Hmm. are the ones that merit a standing ovation. Um, should you clap at the end of a show for people who have given their all and given effort? Absolutely. Um, and and the gratitude is appropriate. A standing ovation should be reserved. And this goes into a larger topic, which I hope we get to sometime. It's certainly in my barricades, but just the collapse of critical standards, uh, mm. which relates to a decline in, uh, in criticism, you know, professional criticism. But just in general, we're in a group think 
social media driven moment where we all have to feel and think the same way. And that's not doing anybody any favors in this profession or any other. Hmm. I would say too, if you don't want to stand up and everybody's standing up, there is that peer pressure. You know, I'm not going to be the jerk that's sitting in my seat. So I know that I have been forced to stand up at times that I'm not really feeling that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Worthy of that. It's it's funny too, because the, the one I was going to, um, bring up next, which, uh, ties really well into yours, Mike. Um, but it feels a little uh, pettier. It's a smaller thing. It's just, and this is for me, a a personal pet peeve. You know, I'm not looking to outlaw anybody's, anybody else's behavior, but you know, I, I'm in the back of the house for pretty much every performance at forward theater company. Cause I, I come to the stage to thank the audience for being there once the curtain call is done. And so what I see almost every night um, the, the show will be coming to an end. The lights will go down. We have this beat of silence and then the lights come up for the curtain call and almost every performance, there's those two people or those four people in a house of several hundred who need to get up and bolt for the door the second the lights come up. And it bugs me. I feel like there's a little bit of a social contract that's being broken there. Um, you know, I, I do not think people should be pressured into standing ovations. I like Julie have had it happen to me before. Um, you do not need to, um, stand for something. If you didn't enjoy it, you do not need to clap for something if you didn't enjoy it. But like this desire to race out of the theater when the curtain call is already starting so that you can presumably get to your car five seconds ahead of everybody else bugs me. It literally, it bugs me. And I I feel petty every time that I am bugged by it, but I kind of feel like, look, if you're a surgeon and you've gotten paged that you need to get to the hospital, you can leave in the middle of the show if you need to. But if you've made it to the end of the performance, <laughs> right. you can stay for 30 more seconds while the cast is acknowledged for their work. That's the social contract we enter into the theater. And you're being five seconds ahead of everybody else does not impress me as a good enough reason to be rude. That's my, that's my first little barricade moment. And it is small and unimportant, <laughs> but it it's bugs important. me. It's important. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's very, Take I mean, a second. it Come goes on. to this respect issue. I mean, it's absolutely right. important. I mean, you know, and, and it's goofy. I mean, this is a general thing in the way people, well, we won't get it. We, we're not going to turn this into a podcast about driving and the way people behave. Like <laughs> but this is related to that issue. <laughs> right. It right. is. Um, cool. Well, that was a successful first All round. Right, there you go. Julie, what, what's your number two? Okay. This was um, inspired by an actual incident, but it has bugged me for a really long time. I was at a panel discussion fairly recently. Somebody who is in the arts, um, not acting, not, um, said that they, she got a wasted theater degree. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I majored in theater and what has that done for me? Mm. And I thought, well, let's see, it got you a passion for the arts. It, um, gave you the ability to stand in front of all of these people and, and speak well. Um, you are in this position. I presumably because there was an arts background. Um, I think a theater degree can, can, catapult you into so many things that have nothing to do with theater. I mean, how many lawyers had theater degrees? How many, how many jobs do we need to speak in front of people, no matter what, 
And this is what this a theater degree can give you and the confidence and that and the working together with people. And there's just so many things that it brings that when I hear somebody, especially somebody who is uh, peripherally in the arts, denigrate that degree, it makes me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The denigration. You're absolutely uh-huh. right. The devaluing of it. Right. Like and uh, what was I thinking? You know, <sighs> you know, Broadway star. No, that's not what that's not what that degree is about. Yeah. Well, you know, we're in a state where I mean, thank God it doesn't look like it's going to happen to the degree that it was to happen. But, you know, one of one of the, you know, prime universities in our state university system, Stevens Point, was going to take a number of liberal arts degrees off the table. And that's just crazy. There is no other word for it. And if it's a budget problem, then you figure it out and you march on Madison and you get more money. I mean, you've got to have these sorts of majors. And to say that something like theater or English or history um, is is not important or worthwhile. Did I say English history? Because that's my next one. (laughs) This is a positive one. I am thrilled to death at what is happening with Shakespeare's history plays in the last five years. Uh, And the most recent thing is uh, uh, there's a Drama Desk uh, nomination for Best Revival of a Play uh, for a revival by the National Asia Theater Company of Henry VI uh, being done in one long marathon session. You have had in the last five years uh, major productions or commitments to do the whole canon uh, from Utah Shakes, Oregon Shakes, Stratford, Chicago Shakes, Orlando Shakes. You've got The Hollow Crown, which is an awesome uh, TV series, which gets to a whole nother issue, which is these history plays are not these moldy things about some ancient past. They're the uh, Game of Thrones. They are House of Cards. They are um, they are things that are going on right now in our world in terms of the way in which power is used and abused and manipulated. They speak to our moment. Um, and I dearly await the day when the great, great theater company, 30 miles to our west, America American Players Theater, now celebrating its 40th anniversary, finally gets around to doing the history plays, which in those entire 40 years, they have still not yet done, including the three Henry VI plays and Henry VIII. There are six plays in the, in the canon that have not yet been done. And these other places are proving that they can work um, and that they will draw audiences. And I can hardly wait for that to happen here. I know that it will. Mm, I like that. Yeah. I like that very much. Um, so this, this next one, uh, I'm going to save my, my positive one for, for last. So this is the other thing I'm going to complain about. And, and the folks who work with me know that there is no easier way to see, uh, steam come out of my ears than to bring up an example of a company. And I'm talking specifically about companies with very large operating budgets that does not pay their working artists and technicians a living wage. Now, I understand that a lot of small budget companies rely on volunteers. They rely on people who will work for less um, uh, than a living wage to help build the company. We certainly, you know, for many of our early years, were in that situation where we said, look, we're going to pay more every year, but can you help us build this? I, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about storefront theaters, but there are so many examples of um, of large budget companies across this country that have millions of dollars to spend every year, and they have actors performing on their stages. They have technicians working in their shops who are getting paid 
below minimum wage. I'm not even talking uh, a living wage, below minimum wage. And it makes me crazy. Um, it's, it's not just disrespectful, it's short-sighted and it, it is in direct contradiction to the talk that's happening throughout our industry about a desire to diversify and diversify in many different ways. And it really does self-select the people who can afford to do theater to people right. who come from positions of economic privilege or to people who are willing to live uh, on a starvation diet. And it's not okay. And if you've got a multi-million dollar operating budget, you have enough money to pay a living wage to the people who work with you. And if you need to cut other things to do that, so be it. This is this is an industry that's built on the backs of individual people and their labor and creativity. And when I hear about really big companies paying next to nothing or even sometimes nothing as internships and apprenticeships and all of that, it's 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 baloney. It's baloney and it's it's gonna be the death of our industry. And and it it this is one where I actually get really mad, not just annoyed. The first one wasn't annoyed. I get mad. I get really mad about it. And um, you know, we you can't fix it at any company other than your own. Um that's why we've made a huge commitment. Every single person who works with Forward um as of sometime last year, no matter what they're doing, um, scenic painters actors, anybody is making above the living wage for the city of Madison, Wisconsin on an hourly basis. And we want to do even better than that. I can't hold every company to that, but we should not be paying starvation wages to theater artists. Amen. I've got, um, it's, it's really insider baseball, but, uh, I will, Fun. I will tell you, um, I started thinking about um, sort of the rise and fall of theater companies. And and we want, I mean, the, the whole goal is to keep keep growing theaters, keep them um, successful, hoping, you know, that um, there's more to come and more exciting uh, programming to be had. But sometimes there's a, there's a shelf life for a theater. And I think the recognition of when... Theaters start saving money by cutting production values. Mm. That's when you need, that's when the board of directors needs to sit down and say, wait, hold on a second. You know, we're a, we're a a musical theater company and we've gotten rid of our live orchestra and we're going to do canned music to save some money. That's, that's cutting the value of your product. And I, and I'm, I'm kind of throwing this out to board of directors to, Take a look at that. And if you're seeing that that's how the budget is being cut, be uh, get yourself a strategic plan and figure out how not to do that. Hmm. That, I think, is a really important thing to keep keep theaters alive and right. keep them doing well. It's really, with, with musicals in particular, it drives me crazy when you get these great musicals that are, you know, orchestrated for 30 or 35 instruments being played by, you know, seven or eight or 10 um, uh, musician pits. And I'm not talking about Oklahoma on Broadway where, where you know, the seven uh, pit, a seven player pit sounds like it's perfect for what they're trying to do with that retake of, of a great musical. But I'm super excited to see West Side Story at the Lyric uh, this month where they have the orchestrations done as they were written, um, you know, 60 years ago. And we need more of that. We need to be telling new audiences what these things actually sound like and can look like so they can be alive 
to the magic of what this great art form delivers. Mm. And that was an example I used. There's a whole bunch of, of ways that, you know, we, 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 we cut, we cut our production values to, to minimize our budget. And I get it. You sometimes have to pare down, but sometimes it's, it's paring down too much. And that's when you really need to rethink the future of, of your company. Mm. Yeah. I guess, you know, uh, my next one is sort of related to this issue. I am um, now that we've got all the season announcements out um, for next year, I am frankly discouraged. There's no other word for it, for the way in which both nationally and even more so in Wisconsin, we continue to lag on programming by the great, great body of new plays that are being done by women and, and people of color. And I have to say that forward in terms of taking risks on newer work, uh, and on work by by women in particular, really sort of stands out in this state as doing something different. But if you look at the, if you crunch the numbers um, in terms of how many plays in next year's seasons by Wisconsin theater companies are by women um, or by people of color, I mean, they are dismal and they have been dismal for a long time. Um, and this does relate to programming because, and to the way in which a production is done, because it involves a similar risk-averse failure to sort of dream big and to see that these really exciting plays can help grow audiences rather than than shrink them. It's also related more directly to a production value kind of thing in terms of sizes of cast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we're seeing so many small two, three, four person plays. And I'm not saying there aren't great two, three, four person plays because there are. But when that starts to become an overriding concern um, in, in an entire season, in the way in which a company programs, we have a problem. Um, I mean, it's related to a lot of things that are not theater companies' fault, like the fact that this state is 48th in the nation in terms of per capita arts funding, even though we're right next door to the state that's number one, the great state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are additional things. We're not making a collective investment in the arts in, in this state, whether it's in schools or in our theater companies, and we're paying the price. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, so my last one, I promised a positive one, and and it it is somewhat connected to that broader topic, Mike. And this is one that I experienced as a a director and someone who reads a lot of scripts. And one thing that I really loved seeing happening more and more and more uh, in scripts is playwrights urging directors, casting directors, artistic directors to think outside of the the sort of ruts that we can get in when it comes to casting. You know, a beautiful example of this is Lauren Gunderson in uh, The Book of Will, where she talks about uh, this script and, and these characters who are playing Shakespeare's contemporaries and friends and colleagues. And she says in the, the, the directions, you know, on the cast page, she's like, Shakespeare belongs to everybody, and it would really be great if this cast could look like the the world we live in, i.e., can they not all just be white people? And she really challenges um, casting directors, artistic directors, to not fall into the trap of going, oh, it's set in England in the 1600s, therefore every character has to be played by a white actor. And it's not just Lauren. I see so many scripts now where the playwright just nudges nudges artistic directors, nudges casting directors to just think it doesn't have to be a default. Let's not make casting white actors a default for everything. And I really like seeing um, playwrights 
moving that forward for, for everybody and by putting it right right on the front page of their scripts and and putting it in the forefront of everybody's thinking to get out of our ruts to to get more um inclusive and um and 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 broad in in how we look at our casting choices and i've really noticed that over the last several years and it's something that i deeply deeply appreciate because i think it it um, does our, our whole industry a lot of good. So that's one, that's a barricade that I will, <laughs> I will happily wave a flag over. Um, I mean, a, a, amen to that. And in case you haven't figured out from this podcast already, folks, that I'm a Shakespeare geek, I'm about to confirm it, <laughs> but two of the best, cause I do think with Shakespeare thinking about casting in different ways and in more diverse ways, sort of paved the way for a lot of what has yeah. happened in the last 20 to 30 years. And it speaks to somebody who is always in my view, one step ahead of us. I mean, two of the best history play productions I've ever seen were a Henry IV that was done by Milwaukee Shakes, starring Angela Nooney in the title role, mm-hmm. uh, and a production of Henry the, uh, also of Henry IV uh, at Oregon Shakes, where a young Latinx actor um, played Henry V, the Prince Hal, at that point. And both of those uh, uh, changed the entire way in which you thought about these these productions. It was fantastic. That is that is wonderful. So, you know, before we wind this episode up, it occurred to us because this is a, just a fun conversation to have that we should really invite the other person sitting silently here in the room with us to share his personal barricade worthy topics. So we're going to invite our producer, Scott Hayden, to join this conversation. It's a pleasure to join you all. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, uh, I I have a positive one or a negative one. Which which do you want to hear? I want to hear both. Yeah, stuff. you want to hear yeah, both. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll start. I'll start uh, with the negative. Um, huge barricade for me is uh, is the latecomer who walks into a theater. Um, I have always been one to attend my productions on time, if not very, very early. And whenever I see folks come in late, it just gets under my skin. And the worst thing is when you see a latecomer come in carrying that gin and tonic they got from the uh, from the lobby bar. And you're like, I know what you were doing before you got to the show. I know why you're late. You know, it used to be, though, at least latecomers would come in and go, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Can I still get in? Can I still get in? And now that it's just wandering into the lobby and, you know, and handing their ticket. And it's like there is no immediacy. There is no... um, Guilt. <laughs> There's no apology. There's no apology. And you know, if you've ever been to a theater like Steppenwolf, uh, you know that if you arrive late for the show, you do not see the first act. And if you leave during the show, the door locks behind you and you watch wow. the play on the monitor in the lobby. And they are very strict about it. And I tip my cap. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> well, I don't see why it's so hard to Scott's point, because this is one of mine too. You know, yes, people get stuck in traffic jams. Yes. yes, they can't find parking. Guess what? Leave a half hour early. The worst <laughs> thing that's going to happen if you come to a forward show, for example, is you're going to get to spend time with people on the forward advisory committee who are in the <laughs> lobby and have fabulous conversations about theater. Whoa, boo-hoo! Yes. So, I mean, if you give yourself a little bit of extra time, you will not only decrease your stress level, you will help make our roads safer, but you will get to the theater on time. Right. <laughs> and not irritate Scott. Indeed. All right. All right. What's your, what's your 
your positive ones. Okay, Doug. the good one is this is totally nerdy as a marketing guy, but I love a well-written pre-show announcement. Ah. Uh, one that embraces the theme of the show. Uh, that's a bit of a nod to what you're about to see. Um, that's uh, that's something clever that you're like, oh, I'm into this now. I really enjoy this. It is not just a rote. Please turn off your cell phones. Uh, here are our sponsors. Um, I love a creative and well-written pre-show announcement. And you do a creative and well-written pre-show <laughs> I announcement. I take great pride yes. in writing yeah. pre-show announcements. Oh, I know, but I do. I guess something that I really do take in at other theater companies. I'm really always curious to see how they handle how they handle that moment of messaging. So right. that's that's a good one. Great. Well, I think that was a robust and entertaining conversation. <laughs> um, so I think we'll call that it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, not to be confused with Hadestown. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Forward Theater, as always, with an E-R. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you might tune in. We're so grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.